Our focus is Jesus, the God-man who came to earth and changed it all. He shocked our world that is birth, being born of a virgin. At 12, he surprised the religious leaders of his knowledge and his interaction with them. Now, we don't know a whole lot of what actually happened for the next 18 years. But at 30, Jesus began his public ministry. He began preaching and healing and making disciples. The king had come, and God's kingdom was advancing. At least, that's what his message proclaimed. But this king was like no other king. So many of you know that the Jews expected a powerful political leader, one to bring justice and peace against their Roman oppressors. Jesus taught with authority, healed the sick, and he even raised the dead. He loved and forgave others. This king showed us how to walk with God, being wholly dependent on the Holy Spirit, listening to the Spirit's prompts, knowing when to say things and when not to say things, knowing where to go and how long to stay. Jesus knew how to treat people and serve them sacrificially. But after three years, it was time. It was time for Christ to be our propitiation. Some of you remember that word as we used it often in our first John study. But Jesus was soon to be our sacrifice, to satisfy God's wrath against our sin. For the kingdom was going to move boldly forward. So how did the beginning of the end start off? And what did that mean? Before we jump in, let's pray. God, we come before you and, Lord, we're ready to hear a very familiar story. I'm pretty sure just about everyone, whether they're listening online or, or right here in the building, You've probably heard about Jesus and his entrance into Jerusalem. So God, when we read this story and we focus on this story, we don't want the familiar to cloud our judgment. We don't want the familiar to, well, have our minds get distracted. We would ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us, would refine us, would convict us, would inspire us. And yet, Father, as we pray and we focus right here, right here in our world, we know that the world is hurting. There are so many Christians in Ukraine and in Russia especially crying out to you to save them, to alleviate the pain, to bring justice. And we pray that same thing, Father. 
It is so hard to understand and try to figure out how all this works together for your good. So we trust you. And we ask you to end this war. And we ask you, dear God, to bring peace to that region. Strengthen those who are trusting you. Strengthen those who are grieving loss. Strengthen those, God, who are wondering where their next meal comes from. We also know, God, that folks all over the world have, have tried to send relief and encourage. And there are people who are right in communities next to these countries who are carrying extra burdens with refugees and loving them. We pray, dear God, that you would do an amazing and a wonderful work, only a work that you could do. We ask that. We pray, dear Father, for especially the Lamberts right now. Father, just a few days ago, they landed in Guam. Their last year has been, well, quite tempestuous. Uh, not knowing when they would go back, ending up in Africa and, and packing up their belongings, being able to get over to Guam and be able to start ministry there. Lord, I know Mike has looked to you and asked you for wisdom and advice, and, and they are so grateful for the way you have guided them and directed them. So, Father, as we read about their journeys, as we pray for them from afar, we pray that you would help them adjust and that you would give them strength and courage for the days ahead. Especially, Father, because their family is separated. We do pray for other churches in this area, God. Churches that as they prepare to care for the flock and preach the gospel... We pray, God, that you would use their leaders and use your word and use thou, these flocks during this time, especially as we focus on your last days, your crucifixion, and your resurrection. We pray, Father, for new hope and for redemption, especially for Pastor Adam. We know, God, again, that, that you are surrounding them and, and, and that you are using this church in a hard community. We thank you, dear Father, for Grace Point and their new pastoral team there. We pray, God, that you would again bless them, encourage them. Lord, we know that there are so many workers downstairs. We know that kids are hearing stories and singing right now of who you are and your love. We pray that you would do an amazing work, that you would strengthen those kids, give our teachers the ability to communicate and to love and to encourage. We are grateful, God, for all that you have done. And it's hard, hard to not bring up blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. So God, we pray that we would use all that you give us 
to honor you and that we would reflect you well this week. We love you, Lord. Open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Actually, today's story is going to start just a little bit before. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 11. We've already read a little bit from John chapter 12. So all of this happened just really days before Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly. Now, although the triumphant entry is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I think we understand why the crowds actually came, why the palm branches were laid before Jesus in John chapter 11. Now, some of you actually know the story, and we're not going to read all the way through John 11, but let me give you a summary. Jesus had three very dear close friends. Their names were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. At this time in the story, the scriptures tell us that Lazarus got really sick. And when that happened, he must have been (laughs) um, just miserable because his two sisters, Mary and Martha, they sent word to Jesus. And they said, Jesus, please come. Your good friend and our brother is sick. Well, the scriptures tell us, and as you can read through that story, that Jesus was good friends, but his behavior was a little odd. Instead of dropping everything and heading back to Bethany, he stayed a few more days. And it was during this time that Lazarus actually died. So as he came into Bethany, Martha came out to meet him. And, and Martha was just exasperated. Jesus, Jesus, why, why didn't you come earlier? Why? And Jesus started talking about eternity and started talking about the resurrection. And, and Martha replied very quickly, Jesus, I know you're the Messiah. I do. And then all of a sudden, Mary heard that Jesus was around. And Mary went to go meet Jesus. And it was this, well, amazing situation. As the people are all gathered around a tomb. And Lazarus has been sick for at least four days. And everyone realizing that if that stone would be rolled away, the smell of decay would just permeate. And Jesus asked that the stone be rolled away. There were some objections, but as that stone rolled away and Jesus called into that tomb, he spoke the words of life. Lazarus, come on, come forth, get up. And this mummified person walks This happened actually just days. They quickly undid all of the cloth that surrounded him. And I can't even imagine the party, the happy dances, the hugs, everything that went on. But all of a sudden, we know this. Is that 
Lazarus was dead. Jesus met him, and now he was alive. Now you wonder about God's timing, even though it was perfect. Why did the gals have to go through such pain, such agony? If Jesus was going to bring Lazarus, well, back from the dead, couldn't he have done it even long distance? Did did we have to go through this days of tears? They didn't understand God's timing. Well, the scriptures tell us that many people believed, but the religious wanted Jesus dead because of this miracle. So in John chapter 11, I'm going to read verse 45. Right at the end of the story. But many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. It was pretty amazing. Then jump over to verse 53. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. As a result, Jesus stopped his public ministry among the people and left Jerusalem. He went to a place near the wilderness to the village of Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. As a result of this, the pressure, the unbelievable crowds that began to gather, Jesus stopped his public ministry. And it was almost time, as you continue to read, for Passover. Uh, To a Jew, this was absolutely the greatest of all the religious holidays. You remember it well in our Red Sea rules as we spent quite a bit of time in Exodus 14. But this was pretty exciting that right before the children of Israel were released from slavery, God told them to sacrifice a lamb to put the blood on the doorposts, and that the angel of death would pass over everyone, everyone that had the blood on the doorposts. So what happened? What was going on? From then, every Jew began to look forward to this time and look at God's power and God's grace and and the way that salvation came to those Jews. All right? Then John chapter 12, and you're in your Bibles, or you have your Bibles right there, and we find out in the first few verses that Jesus comes back to Bethany and and he attends a party. And in Bethany, this party was gonna honor him. It was at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. There was great joy, I'm sure, that's going on. But they just wanted to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And it was at this time, as you read through John 12, that Mary anointed Jesus, used this unbelievably expensive perfume. Most people probably think it was, well, her came from a bank account, came from her um, retirement fund. It was expensive, and Mary was extravagant. Well, the word spread, and people flocked to see Jesus and Lazarus. Some came, I'm sure, to see Jesus, and others came to look at the dead man who was now alive. The news swept through Jerusalem that Jesus was coming into the city. And in chapter 12, 
Starting at verse 12, which we've read, this is what happened. The next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. A large crowd met, and Jesus sat on a donkey, and all those around started tossing their branches and their coats on the ground as the donkey began to walk by. In verse 17, it's very interesting. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That's one reason. So many went out to meet him, and because they had heard about this miraculous sign. So John just gives us a little more insight. It says, yes, this was pretty special. This is amazing, which we're going to look at in just a moment. But so many of the crowd had seen Lazarus come forth from the dead. They smelled the stench when the stone was rolled away. And they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, if you look even in hindsight, I'm not sure Lazarus or his sisters had any idea of God's plan. But it was pretty clear that this miracle was used so that people would come to faith and begin to recognize who Jesus, the king, really was. Now, Jesus here entered the city different than he had ever done before. He never came in on a donkey before, as far as we know. Jesus probably entered through the now-sealed Golden Gate, which is actually in the eastern corner of Jerusalem. And I'm going to read again what happened. I'll continue in verse 13. Praise God. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Well, Jesus had found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read a few verses there. Remember, each of the Gospels tell us a little bit more of actually what this entry looked like. And I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. The others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and all the people around were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was up in an uproar as he entered who, who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You know, the culture was very aware of the Messiah in the first century. Uh, they talked about it often. It was a conversation that could be heard in the marketplace, not only in the synagogue, 
But they wondered and anticipated this Messiah's arrival. And they would talk about how grand life would be. The Jews understood all of the prophecies about the Messiah. They knew how the Messiah would come. They recognized what authority that he would have. Let's look at a few of these prophecies, which were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. In Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet wrote in Isaiah 62, verse 11, the Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior is coming. In Psalm 118, Verses 22 through 26. The stone that the builders rejected has now become a cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, save us. Please, Lord, give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. In Zephaniah chapter 3, starting at verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all of your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy. And the Lord himself, the king of Israel, will live among you. And in Zechariah, one prophecy that we focus on so much, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice. O people of Zion, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove all the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. So in light of the teaching, the miracles, the prophecies, the Jews shouted, Hoshana, Ben David. <laughs> Praise God. Save us, son of David. You've already heard, save us means they recognized Jesus as Messiah. That was the only one that could come and deliver them. Son of David was a common phrase, meaning they acknowledged Jesus as the king. So here Jesus comes in. The people of Zion were rejoicing. The people of Jerusalem. The king has arrived and will soon learn in just a moment, that the king is also going to come again. Now, uh, let me just remind you of this, and, and probably so many of you know this, but, but Jesus had been really consistent over these last three years telling the folks he taught and ministered to that he was the Messiah. In fact, very early in his ministry years, we find in Luke chapter 4, start verse 18, 
This is what Jesus recorded. And let me set it up for you a little bit. He's in his hometown of Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue. And in a normal practice in the synagogue, there would be a time where the Torah or the scriptures, the prophecies, would be read. And there would be different men that would get up and read the scriptures. So Jesus gets up in his hometown. And he opens the scroll of Isaiah. And it goes to chapter 61. And this is what he reads. Just standing there. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Then in Luke 4, the scripture says that he puts down the scroll. I'm done reading, is what Jesus was saying. And basically he says this, The scriptures you have just heard are fulfilled today. At that moment, you could hear a pin drop. Absolutely a pin drop. And people are wondering, did did I just hear that right? I mean, this is a messianic prophecy. These are the things that are going to happen. And did did Jesus just say that? Wait, wait, wait. He's a carpenter. I know his mom and his dad. Like, what did he just say? Did he just say he's the Messiah? And he started talking back and forth. But if you didn't catch it, Jesus did say that. He declared that he was the Messiah. What I'm letting you know, though, you can read the rest of that chapter, and it's, it's a little bit puzzling and hilarious all at the same time. But they all got riled up. Said, you can't be the Messiah. What's wrong with you? And they took him to the edge of the town, which was on a cliff, and they were going to push Jesus over to his destruction. Which goes to show, no. it, It was not a good time. But realistically, the scriptures just say that God somehow blinded the people and Jesus just walked through the crowd and left. Now, after years of teaching and miracles like this, some folks began seeing Jesus as the Messiah. Not everybody, but some did. And even in in John 11, which we had read earlier, Martha said in a very casual comment, hey, we know Jesus, you're the Messiah. We know that. So it wasn't hidden, hidden. So the scriptures shouted to these Jews as Christ rode a donkey through Jerusalem. Again, I don't think we understand the significance of this entrance. It's not to beat up anybody, but but let me assure you, back 2,000 years ago, this scene was nothing than a royal procession. The only folks that did this were kings. And it was clear that everybody understood it because of the palm branches and the clothing that were put on the street so the king's donkey wouldn't even step on a dirty street. You see, 
even if you go into Old Testament scriptures. This scene is so clear. No Jew in this city could possibly miss what Christ's entry conveyed. Jesus was making a statement, and he chose to enter in such a way as to leave no doubt that he was the promised Messiah who was going to come and save the nation. Now we ask, why a donkey? I mean, it seems like a rather humble animal. Doesn't seem like, you know, it should be like a, a, uh, a white stallion or something like that. But in the Middle East, ancient Middle Eastern culture, leaders rode donkeys if they came in peace. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, it mentions Solomon riding a donkey on the day he was recognized as the new king of Israel. This mention of a donkey in Zechariah 9, 9 fits Jesus. It was the description of a king who would be righteous and gentle, one who is bringing salvation or peace. It puzzled the people, I'm sure. They recognized what this symbolism was, but they were hoping for the king on the white horse. On the, for the conqueror, for the power guy to come and relieve them of this Roman rule. But this was the beginning of the end. It was the king of kings writing and making a statement that I have come to bring peace with the Father. I have come to restore a relationship. I have come to be a sacrifice which needs to happen if any of you or myself are going to ever be restored. Now, Jesus, for this last week, and you can read through, especially in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, He continues to teach to the end. He continues to pour into his disciples. And he continues to warn people of God's coming judgment. Now, realistically, if you just kind of study Christ's life in the Gospels, we learn much on how to do life, how to forgive, how to love, how to... Stay connected to the Holy Spirit and to walk in abundance. To have a great relationship with the Almighty God. But let me warn you, it will be much different when Jesus comes back again. And Jesus is coming back again. And he's going to look way different than a guy coming humbly on a donkey. In fact, God revealed to John what the future will look like in the book of Revelation. Many of us look at Revelation and it's written in an apocryphal way and and it's hard to understand sometimes. But John writes what he sees in a vision that God gives him. And near the end of time, 
If you look at Revelation chapter 19, I'm going to read just a few things for you there. Starting at verse 3. This is the vision that John has. This is the gathering of those up in glory. And he says this, and again, John says, I heard their voices, all those in the heavens, ring out, praise the Lord. The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God who was sitting on the throne. And they cried out, amen, amen, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice and said, Praise our God and all of his servants, all who fear him, from the greatest to the least. Then I heard again what sounded like a shout of a vast crowd or a roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud of thunder. Praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. Then John describes Jesus. And he describes him so very different than the king on a donkey. Starting in verse 11. Then John writes, I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one could understand except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce uh, wrath of God and the almighty like juice flowing from a winepress. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of Kings and Lord lords. Jesus isn't riding on a donkey. He comes at the end looking very differently to judge and to defeat Satan. Without going into a lot of detail, but what happens is that unbelievers at this time will be judged at the great white throne judgment. And God's kids will be ushered into the new Jerusalem or heaven forever where Jesus is adored as King of kings and Lord of lords. How cool would that be? How wonderful. You see, we needed a king first to come to pay our debt, to bring peace between God and ourselves. But that king's going to come back. And he's going to bring justice. And there will eventually be peace everywhere. Because our God reigns. He reigns. Let's pray. Father, We don't always understand all of your scripture. And there are times, Lord, that we 
we just wonder what the future is going to look like. But God, we know this, is that you came 2,000 years ago as a humble king to stretch your hands out to shed your blood so that each of us might be children of God. But God, we know as we do life and your spirit lives in us that you will guide us and strengthen us and convict us and inspire us. And there will be some day when we shut our eyes. But God, when we open them, we'll be in your presence. And even now, it's almost impossible to understand what eternity is. But we know this, is that the King of Kings will reign. And we will spend all of eternity with him. We thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And pray all these things in Jesus' name.